0: Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, September 23rd, 2013. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And I am sticking around here in the press box at Crusaders Stadium at uh, University of Mary Harden Baylor where uh, the Crusaders defeated Wesley by the score of 35-7 to on Saturday night, a game in which... Uh, Mary Harden-Baylor's defense came out early and came out strong and pretty much never let up. Wesley got the uh, score in the fourth quarter against uh, a team of uh, primarily Crusader reserves. And the Palace of Division Three football really lived up to its billing. Keith, I know you've seen pictures. I know you maybe watched some of the game online. But let me tell you, this place... Is head, shoulders, and torso above any other stadium in Division Three by a long shot?
1: And, and that comes from you, somebody who's seen a lot of games at St. Thomas, which is probably um, you know the one of the best regarded as one of the best facilities uh, that's been opened in the past you know five years. I, I think Cortland State, when I went there, was was outstanding uh, in terms of size and, and gaudiness and features and stuff like that. You know, some of, some of the best fields in Division Three are actually probably some of the smaller fields with the different views and, and the coziness. But as far as, as um, just having all the accoutrements, it looked like, just, again, from pictures and from seeing it online, it looked like uh, Mary Harden Baylor's new stadium had everything. I guess it kind of makes sense. If they waited 15 years to build it, you might as well do a great job to, uh, to, to put it together. And Pat, I'm not surprised that you're still broadcasting from the press box. I'm sure there's like a hotel room in the new stadium
0: somewhere. <laughs> there might as well be. Um, you know, it's not like Linfield where there was was and maybe still is dormitory space in the uh, grandstand. Um, you mentioned St. Thomas. You know, they've done some nice jo- uh, things around the field, a uh, brand-new scoreboard, uh, the uh, quote-unquote visitor side, which is not really a visitor side of stands, has some high roller stands that is nice. But the home side... Um, is a classic old grandstand that could use uh, some renovation, some rebuilding. They could put that facility in the top five. I think that when you talk about top facilities in Division three, you mentioned Cortland State, uh, and for size and for massiveness, um, you know, I, I think that belongs on the list. Uh, I still like St. John's with the, um, you know, basically now they have stands around three sides, they have the Natural Bowl. Uh, you know, and they've upgraded their uh, facility over the last few years as well. Um, you know, Mountain Union's done some nice things to their facility. I'm not quite sure it would fit in the, in the top 10 necessarily, but pretty close. But the one thing, and uh, I talked about this with Dan Dutcher, the NCAA's vice president for Division III. Not only is it nice to see that uh, Division Three could support, Division III football could support a stadium like this and fill it as it did tonight. But I think that there are only a handful of programs in Division Three that could uh, could really support a stadium like this and, and make, you know, 8,700 seats um, and, you know, a uh, standing room for another, yeah, well, they had another 1,200 or so, 1,100 maybe tonight and could have fit many more around the outside. I'm not sure there's a lot of places, a lot of fan bases that could make this place stand up. Yeah, and, and
1: that's part of it too. Build a D3 stadium. Do you want to build a 10,000 seat place and then draw 5,000, or do you want to build a, a 5,000 seat place and draw 5,000? And it and it, it's you know it it varies for every program and every stadium and you know there's there's so many different uh, things that go into it. You know, we just uh, mentioned UW Whitewater as another big stadium that's sort of grown into its space up on that campus it's okay. It always just kind of had that big one side of the stadium, but since they become a championship level program, the rest of the stadium sort of, uh, come up to, to par with it. I guess you'd say with the, the championship banners and the video board and stuff like that, that's an outstanding stadium. But, you know, you know, Pat, well, you, you mentioned St. John's. I, I put that in a different class from the Courtland State and the Mary Hart and Baylor and maybe Whitewater because it's got the, the natural features as well as kind of a nice, um, grandstand you know get the end zone seating where you kind of sit you're on top of the game and it's very the crowd is very boisterous and there's places like uh like hampton sydney and um widener where there's kind of like natural features around the stadium that i that i like and there's there's the ones like carnegie mountain or east western reserve uh where the buildings are around the stadium and there's there's so many different ways to build a great d3 stadium and take this small you know the same space, but but whatever small area you have on campus and make it come alive. And uh, it, it sounds like, though, and again, you were there, you tell me that just the way Mary Harden-Baylor uh, did this is, you know, top-notch, and now it's something that everybody else out there uh, or the other elite programs out there, you know,
0: have got to match. Yeah, if, they, uh, if, if teams try to play the facilities race with Mary Harden-Baylor, it'll be uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, it's really a – uh, if teams want to keep up with this, it's really kind of a Division II kind of stadium in my mind. I, I, if you look at it, and from the press box side, you see the visitor's side, which probably seats you know, 2,000 on its own and faces against the uh, student union, which is still being built on the opposite side. If you look at from that angle on here, you've got, uh, you've got an upper deck. Uh, you've got uh, chairback seating all around. And uh, it really looks like the, the uh, Division Two games that we see on television on um, uh, CBS uh, Sports Network and that sort of thing. It, it, has, it has that kind of feel with the, uh, with the extra seating and that sort of thing. I don't know if how many programs would be in a position to really keep up with something like this. This is really fantastic. And, of course, when you have uh, Drayton McLean and his money uh, behind the project, you're in a position to do, uh, to do a lot of things. Uh, Mary Harden Baylor made its on-the-field uh, product match up with the uh, stadium on Saturday night as well. You know, Wesley, uh, I look at uh, a couple of things. One, of course, the total yardage numbers are crazy. Uh, Wesley, on uh, the night, uh, minus 31 yards rushing, uh, a little over 100 yards of total offense. But the third quarter, um, you know, Wesley goes into the locker room, And what really the only positive for them was they got a stop late in the second quarter. And they came out and they got a couple first downs. And and for, for Wesley, that was about the high water mark of the first half. They got a couple first downs on their last drive going in and then uh, into the locker room for halftime. And then Wesley comes out in the second half, and Mary Harden-Baylor comes out and holds them to minus 17 yards of total offense in that third quarter, and it really just never was a game. Uh, you, know, you can talk about what you saw, and it's similar to you know what I saw. The, uh, the defensive front for Mary Harden-Baylor just really had its way with the Wesley offensive line. There was way too much speed for Wesley to handle.
1: Yeah, Pat, it was nice to see. You know, Mary Harden-Baylor have a quarterback who could throw the ball. You know, they hit some big plays early in the game and, and got a little bit away from, from Wesley. But I thought by far the thing that stood out to me watching it uh, over the computer was the, the speed off the ball of the Mary Harden-Baylor defensive line. And it just, you know, they were they were in the backfield in Joe Callahan's face when he had time to throw. Uh, he really never had time to throw in the couple. You know, there was one time early in the third quarter on a key third down. I thought he had plenty of time to throw, and he held on to the ball too long, and he got sacked anyway because that relentless D-line was coming after him. And, uh, you know, Wesley just really never had a chance to get anything going in this game. And, um, you know, I don't know if if that's necessarily representative of, you know, the final score, I mean, necessarily representative of how close or or how much distance there is between Mary Harden-Baylor and Wesley at this point in the season, and you know maybe they'll meet later on in the playoffs like they usually do. But right now, I mean, I, I thought it was very clear uh, for, from that game on Saturday that, that Mary Harden-Baylor was the better team, and uh, it started up front. A
0: couple other numbers, and then we'll let this game go. Uh, Joe Callahan was, was only sacked four times where there were 11 tackles for loss by Mary Harden-Baylor. Uh, Mary Harden-Baylor actually didn't run the ball very well. Uh, they, had, uh, they were caught at or behind the line of scrimmage, 16 times total on the night. Uh, and Capapula with the big night. He had uh, 10 tackles and two interceptions. Uh, at one point, he was practically the only uh, bright point for Wesley. And Mary Harden-Baylor broke up 11 of Joe Callahan's passes as he finished just 9 for 28 passing for 136 yards. So Mary Harden-Baylor, yep, they improved to 3-0. Wesley falls to 2-1. and And... Um, we got to, we got to talk about two things. One, we have to talk about what to make of the top five, but before we can talk about what to do there, we really have to talk about the other big shakeup in the, uh, uh, in the top five. And that was the game I wasn't at. Uh, the, uh, the Tommy Johnny game, which was, um, you know, I think played about 10 miles from my house and here I am, uh, 1200 miles from home at the other end of, uh, interstate 35, but, uh, missed a bit of a barn burner in St. Paul in which, uh, St. Thomas turned the ball over five times, uh, and St. John's made him pay for it. But at the end, it was a, a missed field goal at the gun could have won it for St. Thomas. Instead, St. John's—I don't want to say—I've said this, uh, I've said it a couple times already this season. There's been a little bit of the magic for St. John's this year. It looks like they've won a couple of games uh, close and late.
1: Yeah, they've won all three of their games by uh, by three points or fewer. Seventeen, fourteen—the first two games—and this twenty to eighteen. And if you go back a few years, that's how the Tommy-Johnny games were going when the Tommies were sort of on the rise and the Johnnies hadn't, hadn't sort of, I don't want to say bottomed out, but hadn't fallen back to, you know, 500 level yet. Those, the games were all close. There was the fumble on the goal line, uh, you know, 12-9, and 27-26. Those were the way the games were. And then they got out of hand the past couple of years. Uh, St. Thomas won 63-7 and I think 43-21 may have been the score last year. And, and uh, you know, it was good to see the Tommy-Johnny, Game is back, or now we got to call it Johnny Tommy game, right?
0: I guess so. I mean, that's the that's kind of the way we go about things, right?
1: Yeah, and Pat, I, I don't I don't blame you, you know, for for going down to Texas and seeing a game number four versus number five in the country. You know, the opening of the stadium because the the the, the Johnny Tommy rivalry had lost a little bit of its its luster over the past few years with those blowouts, and with St. Thomas just you know rising up into the you know top five perennially in the country going to the stag bowl last year and, and that Johnny's sort of losing that elite program status, you know, where they were a team where they're not only are they not winning playoff games, they're not even beating all the teams in their own conference. And so uh, it's good to have them back just from a competitive standpoint and just for the, for the rivalry standpoint. And I don't know how sustainable it is, you know, because they're winning these games close, but at the same time, you look at defensively, they're keeping themselves in the game, and they don't have to to score 35, 42 points to win, like like some teams do, uh, you know, because they can keep they can keep another team down. And uh, you know, uh, five turnovers. You know, maybe they played this game ten times. St. Thomas uh, doesn't get held to eighteen points again, but St. Thomas you know, had a chance to win at the end and, and missed that field
0: goal. Paul Groppner, the uh, kicker for St. Thomas, made a fifty-three-yard field goal at the end of the first half to uh, to Give the uh, Tommies a 14-11 lead uh, or a trail of, to cut the lead to 14-11 going into the locker room. Um, kind of a strange sequence at the end of the uh, at the end of the game too. Um, I don't know if uh, Saint, if St. Thomas was trying to center the ball a little bit, but uh, Matt O'Connell got uh, caught and then knocked down for a four-yard loss and ended up going from the left hash to the right hash, and then Groppner goes and pushes it left from 32 yards and. And, and that's all she wrote. I mean, you mentioned St. Thomas being held to 18 points. Um, it, it looked like on paper they had all of their, uh, they had all of their pieces on offense this week. Uh, Dan Ferrazzo, the wide receiver, sat out week one with uh, getting nicked up. Brenton Braddock, the number one running back, sat out last week at, um, at River Falls because he wasn't 100%. But, you know, everybody, uh, those guys are all in the box score this week, and it's really interesting to see St. Thomas this year having a little bit of trouble running the ball, uh, just averaging three and a half yards a rush because they have basically everybody back on the offensive line from last year. They did lose their uh, All American center, but they had four yep. starters returning.
1: Yeah, and, and you know the funny thing about just missing that kick, it, it flips the whole narrative of the game, right? Yeah. We'd be talking about. St. St. Thomas had five turnovers, struggled here and there, but was able to find a way to win, and that shows what kind of grit the team has, and they've grown used to winning over the past, you know, three or four or five years. And now, you know, it's funny that just the the sometimes it just comes down to a kick, and it's and you mentioned, you know, it's some it's a kicker who proved earlier in the game he had the leg to hit, uh, you know, from thirty seven if he can hit from fifty three, but um, you know, it's pressure, and and there may not be a more pressure-filled situation in D3 except for Week 11 and beyond than, than you know, the, the scene at, at a Johnny-Tommy game. I have to retrain my
0: brain to say it that way. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is I think the Johnny fans still call it the Tommy-Johnny game. I think that's just the way it's, for some reason, has come down over the years. Although for you know basically the entire span of, of D3Football.com, other than the last couple of years, it was really dominated by St. John's. Uh, I will say this, 10,800 in St. Paul at O'Shaughnessy Stadium. I saw that they put up uh, extra stands in both end zones this year. So it looks like that uh, continues to be a fantastic draw, and we had some uh, some great draws and some great games here in, in Division Three this week. So the question is really, what do we do with St. Thomas? And, and really, a lot of number one votes in play. Um, you know, St. Thomas had, uh, you know, not uh, had gotten a fair number of them, obviously, in the first couple weeks, and Linfield more than did its job on Saturday, and Mary harden Baylor more than did its job on Saturday as well. Yeah, and I mean, so did. i um, by the way, so did Mount Union. Sorry. Yeah, and it, it, it's funny.
1: Mount Union wins thirty-seven to zero. They played Muskingum, and so that's one of the reasons why we're not going to talk about them as much as Linfield, who played a ranked team in Cal Lutheran, and obviously Mary harden Baylor and Wesley two top five teams playing each other. That, that certainly garners more attention, but the Mountain Union was dominant. Uh, Germany Woods had three touchdowns, the first real breakout game for him as a Purple Raider, and it's been a long time coming. And then the defense was, you know, the defense that we'd grown used to seeing when Vince Karras was just running the defense. Uh, Muskingum didn't convert a third or fourth down uh, all day. They had six first downs on the day, but they were 0 for 11 on third, 0 for 1 on on fourth down, Pat, you mentioned those uh, those top 25 uh, votes. They've been split since the preseason poll, and they were split last week: uh, 11 for Mount Union, seven for St. Thomas, six for Linfield, one for Mary Hart and Baylor. So those, like you said, those seven t- St. Thomas votes most likely, okay,
0: right? I guarantee
1: guaranteed yes. they're go- they're gonna go somewhere else. So you got uh, even if Mount Union was to keep its 11. You know, you still have seven votes. Do they go to Linfield? Do they all go to Mary Harden-Baylor? Do they split? Does somebody who, who liked Mount Union um, in a previous week now become convinced because Mary Harden-Baylor's win over Wesley was so thorough? For me, it comes down to Mary Harden-Baylor or Linfield, and, and that's not a knock on Mount Union. We know that they're still, um, I guess, grooming, for lack of a better way to put it. You know, they, they don't have the offense that they had uh, last season with, with the national championship. And today was a good step in the right direction, but it was against Muskingum. So you look at Mount Union, when they played a ranked team, they, they had to you know pull off a drive in the fourth quarter to beat Franklin 30-27. to 27. You look at Linfield's game against ranked team, complete domination, 655 yards today against Cal Lutheran. Um, and then Mary Hart and Baylor, fairly dominant against Wesley. And, you know, it, it's a tough situation for Wesley to go down to Texas to play the, in the opening of a new stadium, you know, Steve uh, Kadosu, we, we know, you know, uh, had been banged up the week before. Wesley was coming off a game uh, against Salisbury where maybe they got away with one, and maybe they weren't as as good uh, as we build them to be going down there. Um, yeah, you know, that's hard to say, but you got to give Mary harden Baylor credit, I think, for, for thoroughly dominating a top five team. So for me, it comes down to Linfield and Mary harden Baylor. And I'm probably leaning Mary harden Baylor at this
0: point. I was already voting Linfield for what it's worth. I just after watching St. Thomas the first week, I didn't feel like they had enough, um, you know, an, an enough intangible. I don't even know what to say. Um, you know, the defense, which had been so dominant in uh, uh, over the course of the last year, looked like it had a little bit of uh, a little bit of trouble against. Um, Not against Eau Claire, that shouldn't be an issue. A little bit of trouble against River Falls, and that didn't really convince me either. I just thought that Linfield looked a little bit more like a safe pick. And this is one thing that goes through my mind as well. Um, You know, I look at does St. Thomas make up the, the difference between them and Mount Union from last year? You know, maybe, maybe not. Obviously, Mount Union comes back a little bit, but St. Thomas came back quite a bit too. Whereas Linfield. You know, Linfield versus Mount Union uh, has never happened. Uh, Mount Union versus anybody in the Northwest Conference has, has never happened in the course of uh, you know, this playoff history that we've had here with the automatic bids. So um, to me, it was a little bit easier to think that Linfield might be the one who's better than Mount Union uh, rather than necessarily St. Thomas. And that's kind of why I voted in that direction. The other thing that comes to mind, too, is if we're waiting for Mount Union to play a ranked team, we're going to have to wait a long time. Um, you know, they, uh, they played Marietta next week, uh, and Marietta's on a, you know, um, a a, 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 long run of futility for themselves. Ohio Northern is after that, and Ohio Northern got, uh, trounced pretty heavily by Heidelberg. And they play Wilmington and Capitol, two teams that combined for, uh, just a couple of wins last year. Home against Otterbein on October 26th. I don't see, uh, Otterbein in that position right now. Uh, after uh, the way they got handled by St. John Fisher, and then they go to Heidelberg on November second, they host Baldwin Wallace and John Carroll to end the season, and those are where the tough games are for uh, Mountain Union in the OAC the rest of the year. Sure,
1: but even if you just judge them on what they've done to date, you know they they uh, uh, they didn't struggle against Franklin, right? They they opened up a nice lead. Right. Franklin Franklin came back, and they had to put a drive together to win. Linfield hasn't you know, even been close in and, and they played Harden Simmons and they played Cal Lutheran, you know, not not exactly pushovers. Linfield uh you know, led Harden Simmons forty three seven and they led in in Cal Lutheran, you know, they scored the first you know, forty one of the forty eight for first forty eight points, something to that effect. Uh forty five seven they led at one point in that game. Cal Lutheran it wasn't quite as bad as as the score. They they missed a couple of field goals while the game was still close. Uh, one from 28 early in like the second quarter, and they missed a 33 yarder in the third quarter. And so the game probably should have been like 24 13 for a while there. But basically, it was a 7 7 game. Linfield opened it up 45 7, so they're completely dominant. Uh, Mary Hart and Baylor, we talked about them, completely dominant. They scored first 35 points against the fifth ranked team in the country, and, and so to me, you know, when I break it down to I think the three clear teams right now are, are, um, Linfield, Mary Harden, Baylor, Mountain Union. And you just, you know, you just juggle who's done, who's done the best against the competition. None of them have been bad. They're all outstanding. So, you, you know, I, I think just for me, it's the fact that Mary Harden Baylor did it against Wesley. Um, you know, none of them had to pull off their big win on the road. They all played their big, big, uh, opponent, uh, in the home game. And, um, you know, I don't think you can go wrong necessarily. I don't think there's there's a wrong answer if if the split uh, when the when the poll comes out ended up being 8-7-7 or ten you know ten ten five, it would be. I don't think there'd be a wrong uh, a wrong way to do it. It's early enough in the season where it's okay to, to move your number one vote around. And for me, uh, right now, I'm, I'm most impressed with Mary Harden Baylor, but they got to keep it up. You know, Linfield may may take that vote back next week. Mountain Union may take that vote. Uh, further down the line.
0: And, you know, just to let the listeners in on one of the secrets here or whatever, uh, sometimes we record this podcast on Sunday, sometimes we record this podcast on Saturday. To be consistent, we always publish it on Monday, but when we record it on Saturday, like we are now, I did not stay an extra 24 hours in the Mary Hart Baylor press box just to do this, uh, that means, let's be honest with you, we just don't know the results of the top 25 uh, top votes. You guys do. So, we're telling you what our perspective is, and obviously there are 23 other voters who could take this uh, any of 23, uh, well, not 23 different ways. I, I suspect there's not a whole lot of permutations and combinations for those three teams at the top of the poll. But but you get the picture. Uh, you know what the picture is, and we're talking about how we feel about it and how we put our particular ballot together. So just so you guys know why we're being vague, that's why. Um Another thing that happened Saturday, uh, Wisconsin Whitewater uh, did to Buffalo State kind of what I thought they were going to do to Buffalo State last year. They uh, jump out on them early, jump on them often. Uh, Buffalo State you know, had negative uh, total yards in the first quarter. Whitewater rolled up a big lead and pretty much, I would say, had to uh, had to have laid out an entire year of frustrations on the Bengals in that 55-14 win on Saturday.
1: Yeah, we hinted at it last week in the podcast. and you know that this was a win that was needed for whitewater they even kind of struggled a little bit in in their opener this season against uh against washu 17-7 was that win you know they had to kind of fight for that one and i think that's been consistent throughout last season when they went seven and three and in that opener is that the defense was there but the offense hadn't quite been there and it, it really was there from the start against buff state um Matt Brent, of course, the the new quarterback that uh, that that they're pretty excited about. at uh, Whitewater, I, I guess he's not that new since he played half of last season, but you know he hooks up with uh, with Tyler Huber minute and a half into the game. So he, you know Tyler Huber's back; he's healthy. Uh, and, and then it just kind of it just got from there, got ugly because uh, Whitewater, you know, scored twenty four points in the first quarter. Um, added, you know, it started getting. Buff Buff State put a fourteen play drive together late in the in the first half, but then Whitewater. Um, you know, a, couple of, a couple of fumble returns for touchdowns, and they really just wrote, won that thing going away, and that, that was probably exercising some demons for them. And, and here's the thing about how well that defense played against Buff State Buff State rolled up almost 600 yards of offense last week, beating Brockport State. So it's not like that's a, that's a, you know, holding them to under 200 yards is, 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 a, is quite an accomplishment.
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, and it was like that last year, too. A, a buff State to had come in off a big offensive week the week before. And, um, you know, one thing that continues to stick in the back of my head, you know, is if uh, if Eric Kindler had made his kicks last year, we wouldn't really be talking about that game necessarily, except we might be talking about it as a harbinger and what was to come. But he missed two uh, field goals last year, which were makeable field goals in, uh, in, in Whitewater. Uh, football history uh, this year you know no issues uh, perfect on all the extra points uh, made two field goals and that's another key piece I think that's a place that they struggled last season as well
1: yeah and, and now you know you look at whitewater they have Waldorf coming up and then the you know they kind of dive into the wyac schedule with lacrosse stout Eau Claire and it's not till the end of uh, October where they go to Oshkosh and then they play Platteville so kind of what you were saying about mountain union um, you know, Whitewater has a chance to really build its confidence, really get rolling here before it has to play the two toughest teams in the conference.
0: Oshkosh off on Saturday. Platteville went to Lewis and Clark and won 63 to 34. That's a uh, that's a game that was for some reason really neck and neck early, and Lewis and Clark led 27-21 at the beginning of the second quarter before Platteville, I don't know, got its legs underneath it or whatever and, and, and pulled away, but You know, Lewis and Clark isn't a team we expect to be uh, particularly good or competitive in the Northwest Conference. Um, For for Platteville, you know, I don't know what happened those first 16 minutes, uh, but that's a little bit of a that's that's something that raises a red flag for me.
1: Yeah, certainly. You know, Platteville, I have questions about their defense. I don't think it's going to be quite the dominant unit that you know Whitewater is, for instance. but maybe you give them some credit for having to fly out to oregon and play that game and, and play it against an unconventional offense or you know i don't know what it was either but in the end they, they you know end up winning by 30. so you, you i feel like every week when i when i do the ballot too, i'm reorganizing the the three YAC teams i have in, in the ranking and i may end up doing that this week because you go from being not that impressed with whitewater to really impressed and then not that impressed with platteville and then Oshkosh, you know, played kind of a shaky half against Central, and then uh, great in the second half of that game. And then they they you know beat Marion, the NAI, the NAI defending champion, beat them pretty handily last week. So now you you know feel good about where where they sit. And uh, it, it's really you know we talked about the top three or even the top five, depending on where where you you drop Wesley and St. Thomas to. Uh, and th- there's going to be now. Beyond that top three, there's going to be a good bunch of teams, maybe from three to 12 or 15, where you re- really have to give it some thought about where everybody ranks. A lot of times, they come in, the, the tiers are pretty clear. Like you got your first six teams that are definitely the dominant teams, and then the next tier, and then a tier below it. And the, the, these are really, you know, I, I think it's going to be kind of tough. You're going to have to really re examine the whole ballot, you know, the North Centrals and the Bethels and, and, and all those teams out there, too. Where, where do they stand?
0: There's only a couple of other games involving top 25 teams, which I think really merit a significant amount of discussion. One of them is that uh, battle in Cleveland between, uh, well, I guess not technically in Cleveland proper, but between John Carroll and Baldwin Wallace, in which John Carroll just kind of came out and stated, at the very least, marked their claim to be the number three team in the OAC, if not something better.
1: Yeah, and, you know, we talked a little bit about John Carroll's quarterback, who time ago I played at Pitt and and it been you know really impressive last season As Mark Myers we're talking about but you know popping in on that game and, and checking out the box score he, he didn't have a, a outstanding numbers at all he, he passed for 258 yards 19 to 33 a touchdown an interception it was really the the run game that uh that, that got it taken care of for John Carroll and then you know defensively they didn't let Baldwin Wallace uh, really get anything going at any point in the game. 183 total yards for Paul Bunwall. It's just 49 passing. And when you think about the way offense has evolved over the past ten years, let's say for a the team to 49 yards passing, and at a point, you know, when they're down 20 in the game, they're probably throwing the ball to get back in it. Uh, you know, they had an outstanding night on defense. John Carroll must have. Again, you know, I think so busy watching. You Wesley know, and Wesley, Mary Hart, and Bailey didn't get a chance to watch most of that game, but when you look at the at the box score, it uh, really just uh, must have been an outstanding defensive night for uh, for John Carroll, and so as much as we, you know, give a hat tip to the quarterback and the offense, you have to give credit to the defense as well.
0: Similarly with John Carroll, I don't think we're going to find out a whole lot about uh, how good they are unless they lose one of these upcoming games. Uh, they don't play Heidelberg till Week 10, and they don't play Mountain Union until Week 11, so... Uh, they go Otterbein, Capital, at Marietta, home to Muskingum at Ohio Northern, at Wilmington, and you know unless one of those teams finally you know one of those teams lights a fire under uh, you know especially with all the new coaches in the league, um, I really think that uh, we're not going to find anything out about John Carroll per se until November.
1: Well, yeah. This, so this is if this is their statement game for the first month and a half of the season, assuming they're consistent from here on out, then you know this is one they can they can rest on for a little while. Again, you know, assuming Baldwin Wallace, it turns the rest of the season
0: around as well. That last time that uh, John Carroll was a player on the national stage, you go back to two thousand two, twelve and two, eight and one uh, under Tom Arth as the quarterback. He came back and uh, came back from injury and led them all the way through the East bracket as the last seed in the tournament on that side, and won uh, three games on the road. Then came back and lost to Mountain Union in the national semifinals, and it's been that long. Since John Carroll's uh, been, you know, has won more than six games, or won more than seven games, they won seven, six, five, six, five, three, five, five, six, which is either the number of wins they've had for the past decade or, you know, the uh, Romanian judge in uh, swimming and diving or something, I'm not sure.
1: I thought you having a phone number joke, but you know, for most of those years, John Carroll was a fairly good team. You know, you mentioned seven a bunch of times in there. They were a seven-win team, and it was really just that one year where they fell off. They were never a bad team under Regis Caffey, but so they had the three.
0: Yeah, they had that one, three, and seven year, but otherwise, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but it's it, it's weird. I, I don't know if it's you know, I mean Tom Arth was on the coaches staff at, at at one point, so it's not it's you know it's the same thing I'm looking at with St. John's. Uh, and Gary Foshing who was a part of the, a major part of the coaching staff for the past couple of years. Does it mean when you turn the reins over to a guy, does he bring, you know, you can't give him a lot of credit for having fresh ideas because he was there. He was part of the program the whole time. But maybe it's a fresh energy. Uh, you know, maybe it's just coincidence. I don't know what it is. But John Carroll playing much better under Tom Arth. St. John's obviously off to the three and i start under Gary Foshing. Uh, just something to, to ponder, I guess, and think about, you know, with, with the change of coaches.
0: I think you have an opinion on Delaware Valley uh, and in general. I, I don't quite know what to make of the top of the MAC right now. Uh, Delaware Valley with a uh, field goal as time expired to win at Albright, and uh, you know Albright last week, obviously losing to Stevenson, uh, makes us wonder a little bit more about uh, about their season. But I think we still probably expect them to be fairly decent, even if they're not necessarily the MAC contenders we might have thought they were in week zero. Yeah,
1: It can be a dangerous game trying to compare scores, but sometimes that's all you have to work with because you know Albright also beat Kane, Kane played Mary harden Baylor even for a half. So you know what does what does this all mean? I think it means right now that Delaware Valley uh, is, is a clutch team for a lack of a better way to put it. The big comeback against Rowan in week one and then in this game it wasn't just the, the game winning field goal, but they actually trailed. In that game, uh, in the fourth quarter, seventeen fourteen, they put a, put together a field goal drive midway through the fourth, and then kicked the field goal as time ran out. That's something that, when your team does that, and when you're trailing, you know whether it's by three or, or whatever, um, and you come back to win, you, you sort of you, you buy into you you believe in yourself a little more. When you get in that situation later in the season, you you, you know you do remember that you've done it before, and, and it's human nature to, to to be afraid to lose and once you've you've come out of that situation fine, I think it does kind of galvanize teams, and you know it doesn't it doesn't magically make you play better, but it does keep you from from freaking out when you get in a bad situation later in the season, and that's something Del Delval has sort of as an ace in
0: the hole right now. Uh, Widener, who's the uh, another top twenty five team in the MAC, uh, defeated Wilkes on the road twenty one nothing, sixty nine points fewer than last year's win against the Colonels. Uh, some of the other teams that are more uh, that are out of the top 25, but we've uh, spotlighted some of these teams on the website already. But some of the surprise 3-0 teams, uh, you know, for example, uh, I was surprised a little bit by uh, Gallaudet early in the early in the afternoon on Saturday. Um, not that I'm necessarily surprised that Gallaudet's doing well. Um, I think that if you go back to the predictions and kickoff, uh, that was my pick for the most uh, surprising playoff team. And they're playing like they could do fairly well, if not run the table in the ECFC this year. if you go and beat, uh, you know, the University of Rochester, which is a team that struggled, uh, but is in a uh, a reasonable conference in Division Three in the Liberty League, um, and they beat them, you know, going away, thirty-seven to thirteen. That's um, you know, that's a a pretty impressive sign for the Bison.
1: Yeah, I would I would say so, and I wouldn't disagree with anything that you said. For me this uh, the biggest surprise at 3 and0 I think is Juniata yeah. you know there, there, there's a handful of, of teams across the board that are 3 and Um, you know we mentioned St. John's but most of the, a lot of the other teams that are 3 and0 even if they're um, teams that haven't had a lot of success and, and so you couldn't assume they'd win any of other games I'm thinking of mm-hmm. like a, like an Olivet here yeah. you know they also didn't play the greatest teams to, you know to be 3 and0 um, you know you, you got to give them credit for winning especially when you haven't had many wins. In the, in the past several seasons. Or, you know, Stevenson and uh, Pacific, you know, young programs, you got to give them credit for getting off to an undefeated start. But for me, the Juniata wins are really impressive because uh, they, they're, they first of all, they're scoring like mad, uh, 41, 37, 38 in, in their three games. And then to beat, to win at Dickinson and beat Gettysburg, it's not the top, top of the, the Centennial Conference, but it's not they're not running over bottom feeder teams either, and they're beating them pretty thoroughly, you know, 37-14 against Dickinson, 38-16 uh, against Gettysburg. We got a chance to watch some of that game. It was uh, getting kind of messy out there, uh, and, and Juniata still throwing it around and, uh, and completed passes down the field, and they got a quarterback, and, and, you know, you got a quarterback, you got a chance, they say, and uh, Ward Udinski is the man for Juniata, and I think we're going to, um, you know, name a little bit more for, for teams that follow the Centennial Conference.
0: Uh, RPI on that uh, 3-0 list, maybe not a, particularly a surprise that they won today against Cortland State, or against Cortland State, that would be worth worth mentioning, but it was Castleton State, who they beat 23-8 in Castleton without its quarterback, without its top two wide receivers, who have now both been implicated in this uh, shoplifting scandal, for lack of a better term, up in Vermont, uh, they've, uh, they're going to struggle to do much of anything at, the, at this point the rest of the season, but for RPI... Um, you know, being 3-0 and is uh, unusual territory for them the last few years. Yeah,
1: and I'll tip the hat to their defense as well. They they held Castleton State to minus or negative 42 yards rushing. And, you know, you mentioned that Castleton is playing without some of its uh, top offensive playmakers. But, you know, they still had a, a receiver that, that caught 11 passes for uh, 147 yards and Soren Pels-Walsh in, in that game. So, uh it wasn't like they couldn't get anything going, but RPI you know, really never let them uh, get a run game going, and, and you know, uh, pick a cliche when it comes to a team that doesn't have balance. Uh, Castleton had to throw the ball 54 times, and, uh, and you know, it's just hard to win that way when you you know you can't ever bust off a, a long run. Six yards was the longest run for Castleton State. Uh, we tip the hat so far to the uh, to the RPI defense. The uh, the competition will get a little tougher. Uh, as RPI gets into its uh, Liberty League schedule. But for right now, they've got to be pretty pleased with, uh, with, with the new coaching staff under Ralph Asernia and being off to three 3-0 start.
0: For years, Hope College was the program that played some crazy, strong non-conference games, uh, non strong non-conference schedule, and that did particularly well in the MIAA. Uh, over the course of the last couple years, they kind of fell off of that wagon quite a bit. Uh, and currently they're 3-0, and uh, the schedule is not the greatest, but you know these are one of the teams that they beat this year was somebody they lost to last year. They uh, turned things around and uh, turned it around on Milliken. Uh, they, uh, like I said, they're three and zero with wins against North Park, dominating win against Milliken, and a dominating win against Wisconsin Lutheran. They'll obviously get a bit of a uh, tougher test next Saturday at Illinois Wesleyan, but you know I would have to think that the way things are going for the Flying Dutchman, they're in position to be in contention once again in the MIAA.
1: Yeah, Pat, you mentioned that they used to play the crazy schedule. They they passed that one down the line to Alma. They let, yeah. they let, uh, uh, Alma, for some reason, that now is playing the crazy schedule. But hope, you know, playing two CCIW teams, I, I think the most impressive thing is similar to what I said about Juniata, that they've uh, been consistent with the scoring 41-41-37 the past two weeks, only given up a touchdown each. Uh, you know, when you're when you're winning and you're winning handily and thoroughly, you know, really one or two things can happen. You can start to feel yourself a little bit. The team can start to think it's better than it is. Or if it's a team that hasn't had a lot of success and it finally gets that taste of winning, uh, sometimes that can really, really build a, a team's confidence. You know, they, they just want they want more of it. And, and um, I, I don't, you know, once you look past Illinois Wesleyan, Pat, yeah, I don't know if there's anybody – right now that's running that, that we expect to run away with the MIAA. I think trying uh, is going to be a factor. you know Adrian obviously lost that, that early game in the Pacific. I could get that could be a, a, kind of one of those interesting races to watch during the season and, and you know if a team with a loss or two wins it uh, they may not get a very good playoff um, draw, but it'll be entertaining to watch.
0: Michael Atwell with another outstanding game on Saturday for hope. Uh, one of the three, one of the three teams that we haven't talked a whole lot about uh, in the, although we thought pretty highly of them, in the preseason is Bridgewater. Uh, they defeated, uh, not Bridgewater State, Patrick. Bridgewater defeated Ferrum 51 to 28 on Saturday. Ferrum has certainly fallen off a bit from last year. Uh, Ferrum is 0 uh, three and has given up more than 40 points in each of its three games. But Bridgewater, sitting in. Pretty good position. Uh, they go to Shenandoah next week, so the game against Hampton City is no longer the conference opener for them because of the change in the conference schedule. But that game against Hampton City coming up in uh, three weeks still looms large. Bridgewater has a bye after this three 0 start.
1: Yeah, I you know the most impressive thing about Bridgewater is just the the ability to you know get up and down the field quickly on offense. And uh, Willie Logan at quarterback gets it started for them. But they they were able to you know, uh, they with withstood a couple runs from Ferrum. They, Bridgewater got out in front 27-7. Ferrum you know, made it 27-21. Ferrum thirty 34-28. They, made, they kept that game close a couple times, and Bridgewater, you know, took Ferrum's best shot and and was able to pull away in the end. So I think that's a pretty encouraging sign for fans of the Eagles. I think for, um, for the rest of the ODAC, you know, it's hard to – it's hard to handicap, and, and that's every year in the ODAC. But, you know, this year, as much as any, Washington Lee today went out and uh, lost at center, you know, so we, we don't know necessarily what to make of them. Hampton-Sydney won big at Coast Guard, ran off Macon beat Bethany. and you know, Catholic has been playing well. You just don't – right now you don't know in the ODAC, but I think uh, right uh, – if I had to say one team uh, is looking pretty outstanding, at least on offense, uh, I'd say Bridgewater, 538 yards uh, total today.
0: For example, Emory and Henry. Uh, Emory and Henry, three uh, and zero. Then they uh, defeated Methodist pretty handily on Saturday. Um, but you know, Emory and Henry has done this before in the non-conference schedule. If I go back, each of the last four years, they've won uh, three non-conference games or more. Uh, they and, and still haven't been able to quite put it together in the conference. It's been several years since they were over five hundred. And of course, you have to go back to two thousand before. Uh, you get in a position where they were really a factor in the conference race. Well,
1: we're going to find out really quickly what uh, what the WASPs are made of. Uh, it's at Randolph-Macon, then Washington-Lee, and the Sydney Catholic Bridgewater. So, the, you know, they, if if they're going to be good this year, they're going to have to prove it pretty much all of October. And, uh, you know, while we're, we're on the topic with them, uh, outstanding, outstanding passing day today by um, Kyle Bowden, the quarterback. 382 yards, five touchdowns, but that's not the most impressive part. The impressive part, 29 of 31. That's about 93-point-something uh, completion percentage. Uh, I saw on, on Twitter it was a new record, but I, I haven't checked the NCAA record book on that. By the time you listen to this, we'll probably have, have determined uh, that, uh, that that is a new uh, completion percentage record uh, for, for you know a quarterback throwing the ball
0: 30 or more times. It seems like every time we, and I think this record has come up and been batted around before. I think every time this particular one comes up, somebody finds a game that isn't in the record book that should have been. It's one of those records that I guess is not very well uh, parsed by the computers at the NCAA or whatever. It just seems, uh, it seems unusual that, uh, that we can't get a solid answer on that, but uh, we'll, we'll try to get a solid answer on that. We are coming up on the 45-minute mark of this podcast already, and I'm going to throw the next topic to Keith.
1: Hmm. I, that's, a good, that's a good question. What team, I guess, uh, surprises you the, the most so, so far out of um, you know the teams sort of either hanging around the bottom of the top 25 or, or um, the team The teams, you know, maybe that we ranked in the preseason between 25 and 100. And and since I sprung the question on you, I'll I'll give you uh, one of the teams that's begun to impress me. And it happened uh, today with a 99-yard game-winning touchdown drive. Uh, It was Huntington playing against Louisiana College. Not sure what to make either of those two teams if they were going to live up to to some of their best seasons. They've both been playoff teams in recent years. But, uh, you know, we came into the season not knowing uh, quite how good they'd be. I think that's a really big win for Huntington, and now I'm going to have to keep an eye on them uh, for you know potential top 25 consideration.
0: That's a measure of what my Saturday was like. I learned about how that game ended uh, in line waiting to get my credential to get into the stadium at Mary Harden Baylor. Uh, longtime D3boards.com poster Kelly Boggs recognized me because I'm wearing the shirt uh, and came up to me and said, Hey, did you hear about the Huntington, Louisiana college game? And It was like, uh, tied, uh, 27, 27, I think is the last I heard about it. And he told me how about, uh, about how that came down. Um, I think if I were to pick out a team like that, um, I would be thinking about somebody like Millsaps, but I'm not sure if we learned, uh, I'm not sure what to make of a, a win against Point University. Um, I'm gonna assume that they're in the NAIA, and I uh, don't even know that for sure, to be honest with you. But Millsaps uh, won that game 38-17, and uh, you know they were up by two scores or more for the final. It looks like the final 39 minutes of that game. Um, I think Millsaps could be pretty good. I think Millsaps would be in a position where you know, with three potential Pool B bids this year, going to teams that are in conferences that don't have automatic bids or independence. Then um, I think that they're in position to uh, to get into the playoffs the way they've been playing so far.
1: Yeah, I'll give you uh, a couple more teams. To uh, John Carroll, we mentioned. Yep. Uh, Thomas Moore hasn't given up any points this season. They're only uh, only two and zero, oh, but uh, that's always a good sign, in, in uh, especially when the wins, uh, you know, not not against the, the dominant teams. In in you know Pennsylvania Ohio area but uh, or Kentucky I guess I have to include Kentucky even though you probably should about, <laughs> I'm talking about a, a pack team
0: they're but, in Kentucky so yeah.
1: right right so but I assume you know Pennsylvania when I think back um I think you know that's a good sign when your when your defense is playing that well over the first two games
0: absolutely we uh, I, I think we should do a should we do a lightning round like we did last week
1: sure although we hit, we hit a lot of lightning already.
0: That's true. I have uh, I have four shoutouts left. All that, right, let's do them. Uh, that I haven't used yet. I wanted to start with Carlton defeating uh, Hamlin in overtime, twenty to seventeen. Carleton versus Hamlin maybe doesn't make a big splash on the national scene, but uh, this is Dick Tressel as an assistant coach now for Carlton returning to Hamlin where he was a head coach and you know, frankly, probably the last successful head coach that at, uh, that Hamlin's had. Uh, so that was a a. Uh, a, a reunion night there in St. Paul and Carlton improves the two and zero against Grinnell and Hamlin, but uh, you know, good to two and zero start for them is is uh, certainly better than the alternative. Uh, Puget Sound snapping. Uh, you stole ah! my <laughs> should we, we? Do you want to alternate? I just thought lightning would go faster with one person and then the other no, person.
1: I, I think we should definitely alternate. That way, I'll have my lightning queued up while you're. Lightning-ing.
0: Well, there you go. So, talk about Puget Sound then.
1: All right, well, I was just, uh, obviously, uh, the you know, the breaking of the long win streak. Puget Sound has uh, been 0-9 the past couple of seasons. They got uh, got out to lead against Whittier, 21-7. Whittier came back and made it interesting. But in the end, the uh, five turnovers did the Poets in. Puget Sound wins 44-33 and that's the first win for them since the middle of 2007,
0: uh, yeah. 10-30. 4233. the last time they won was they beat Pacific. and that's saying something too, because you know Pacific was only in its uh, Pacific was in its first year as a program then, um, and Puget Sound hasn't even been able to beat them the last couple years. Uh, I wanted to uh, throw a shout out at Birmingham Southern for upholding Division three versus Division one, uh, even if it is a uh, significantly young program in Stetson uh, for Birmingham Southern to go down and, and win that game, I think, you know maybe doesn't say, a whole lot it doesn't show us a whole lot, but it's good for someone to uphold the pride of Division Three against Division One, Double FCS, non-scholarship teams of that ilk.
1: Well, you didn't steal that one from me. Uh, I'll stick with the broken win streaks, uh, the broken losing streaks. Uh, Huston beat Alfred State, and Alfred State's new to Division Three, and it wasn't a pretty game. Uh, Huston only gained 210 yards. They overcame four turnovers by forcing three Alfred State turnovers and they kept Alfred State under uh, 200 yards themselves, I think it was the number was 180 or something of that nature, in a uh, 13-0 win. And look, they don't have to be pretty when you haven't won in, in a while, in, in a season or, or two. You know, you take them however you get them. The, uh,
0: the Marietta hasn't won in a while either. That's not who I'm shouting out though. Of course it's it's Capital who beat them 42-13, to especially with a, a big second half uh, putting up 35 of those 42 points in the second half. The one thing I find interesting about Capital is, uh, you know, they've gone to that uh, they've gone to the triple option this year. Uh, Chris Candido is his background in the military academy probably makes it a little bit easier to to bring something like that in. Uh, they ran for 429 yards, but they only held the ball for 32 minutes and 10 seconds. So um, interesting numbers there, but lots of. Uh, Lots of rushing and for Capital and for a team that we predict uh, predicted to go two and eight, um, you know they're obviously uh, still on pace to potentially do that uh, because they lost to Thomas Moore and they beat Marietta and those are two things I think when you predict Capital go to two and eight, that's those are two results that are probably included. But at the very least uh, for them to to get off to a start and try to do better than the two and eight that they finished with last year. I'm going to give a shout-out, or it's it's the shout-out round slash lightning Yeah, I don't know, whatever. (laughs) Lightning shouts.
1: Lightning shouts. I'm going to give a lightning shout to Harden Simmons' defense, which uh, they finally showed up and played a pretty good half uh, in a 66-34 win at Texas College. And I know know, giving up 34 points is not usually considered a good thing, but uh, they played well in the first half of that game. Texas College, only points they put on the board was a uh, early 29-yard fumble return for a touchdown. Harden-Simmons was able to open up a 38-7 lead uh, early in the third quarter of that game and, and pull away to get their first victory. The reason that's so significant is because in the first two weeks of the season, Harden-Simmons had given up 64 points uh, against Willamette and 71 at Linfield, and now 34 was a big improvement
0: today. We're getting this one in under an hour, but if you uh, haven't read... Keith's uh, snap judgments in Around the Nation from Sunday afternoon. Uh, You're going to find some things here that we haven't talked about, some things here that we have talked about that certainly happens. Um, But, uh, you know, you can uh, read that. There will be other Keith McMillan Around the Nation columns throughout the rest of the week. We'll have our uh, play of the week on Tuesday morning. We'll have uh, the D3 reports and the post-game show on Monday evening. I know we have at least two from Mary Harden Baylor uh, I got to meet I got to meet Chad Hammonds by the way the guy who uh, is the uh, d3 report uh, reporter extraordinaire from uh, at Mary Harden Baylor and he was disappointed that you weren't able to make it but I explained to him that it's important that you keep your day job and he was under understanding of that
1: yes uh, it's nice to have a house uh, over my head so we can record these podcasts uh, and you know I yeah, blame the, the Detroit Lions and the Redskins I <laughs>
0: I can think of many things to blame, but that's okay. Uh, many many ra- ways and reasons to blame them. Uh, we had some great around the region columns last week, and hopefully we'll have another great seven. We have uh, all seven reporters uh, on staff now, uh, so that's good. We'll have a, a full slate of them uh, next week, and then some of the interesting games coming up next week in Division Three. Uh, you know, Case Western Reserve is one and two and they are going to host Linfield. Uh, Linfield is going to make a, a long trip to Cleveland and maybe not face too much opposition uh, in Case Western Reserve. Uh, Sol Ross State comes here to Crusader Stadium. Yes, I'm still here and they haven't kicked me out yet. Um, and I'm very thankful for that. Uh, Wesley goes to Birmingham Southern as they, uh, take a long trip for the second consecutive week. Hobart at Merchant Marine. Uh, we mentioned Alba's crazy schedule to open the season there. They go to Wisconsin-Oshkosh. Uh, Pacific Lutheran makes the long trip to Wisconsin-Eau Claire. Maybe that's where I'll end up next Saturday because I haven't seen Pacific Lutheran play since 1999. Um, you mentioned the Waldorf at Whitewater game. Uh, Muhlenberg, it goes to Johns Hopkins. Uh, St. John Fisher hosts Cortland State. Uh, Wabash at Allegheny. Delaware Valley hosts Stevenson. That would be an interesting, uh, interesting matchup there. Uh, and, of course, the... Like coming Widener game, how about your great? Your favorite, like a Widener memory, Keith. Fifty forty
1: nine.
0: That's a double overtime game. It was maybe two thousand.
1: but I think it was later than that because two thousand.
0: You were writing. I think you were writing it around the region column then. That's yeah, why I would maybe think right,
1: that. Right, I have to dig up some old columns and, and read about that. But those, that's one of those rivalries. It's, it's just for some reason, it's a great game every year.
0: Yeah, my favorite. Well, man. Too many favorite like a Widener moments. Remember the one that ended uh, in the Miracle in Mud fashion where uh, Widener had a, uh, if I get this correctly, Widener had a game-winning field goal attempt blocked and then recovered it and threw a shovel pass to win it? Did I get the teams in the right order there?
1: Uh, you know, I'm, I, I don't even have it memorized off the top of my head. I just remember that sometimes the scores and, the, yeah, like you said, the, the, it ended in the mud.
0: Yeah. Um, and the other one is the one that happened in 1998, where uh, Winer was leading with about uh, three minutes to go. Lico comes down, drives the length of the field, and then comes down and uh, drives again to score. And that was the game, which basically told me that we had to have a Division III football website. That just having a Division III basketball one was not enough. Uh, and uh, I think Lico came back and won that game. I think it was 15 to 13. Was the was that one? The Jason Marasini era.
1: That's the one I was waiting for you to bring up. I had the numbers fifteen to thirteen in my head, and it was thirteen to two, right before before. Yep. Uh, anyway, um, hey, throw this game on the on the games to watch list. Somebody's got a win to win. Although Hendricks already has a win. Southwestern goes to Hendricks uh, next week, so uh, two first year, two of the three first year programs. Uh, we'll be facing off against each other. One of them will, will, will add a victory to its tally.
0: Yep. And you can, uh, I, I talked with Southwestern coach Joe Austin on Saturday morning. That uh, video interview is up on the d3football.com homepage. It probably won't still be up by the time this podcast hits on Monday. So hopefully uh, you watch it. But it's an interesting building process for them. You know, you look at them and think that they could be maybe what where Mary Harden Baylor was 15 years ago, just starting out not with a stadium of their own, uh, playing off campus, trying to bring in a bunch of kids and, and generate some excitement. So if they follow along the Mary Hardin baylor path, they could be pretty good shortly. But even if not, uh, they've already looked halfway decent here through the first three weeks, although uh, East Texas Baptist kind of took it to them on Saturday. And, of course, there are a lot of other games uh, next week in the uh, Week 4 schedule. Center goes to Wash U, Wash U, has had a, a tough couple of weeks. They've lost to two top 25 teams, but uh, still could be in a position to make the playoffs if they win out and run the table. Um, you know, St. John's hosts Concordia Moorhead. That's a game at a series, and a lot of games have gone down to the last couple minutes and been some crazy, miraculous plays to end that to end those games in the past. Uh, St. Yeah. Norbert, St. Norbert goes to Carroll in a game that should mean something uh, to Midwest Conference fans. And, yeah, um, you know, obviously, I think I, I'm interested in the Pacific Lutheran games specifically um, because that's a trip for them, and Eau Claire has faced some pretty tough competition the first couple weeks, so that might be interesting. Southern Virginia plays its only game against an NJAC team uh, all season. Before they join the NJAC next year, they play at TCNJ next week.
1: Gotcha. Did you mention uh, Waynesburg at Thomas More? That could be uh, interesting with uh, Waynesburg is 3-0. Uh, but hasn't really played anybody uh, outstanding. So we'll see it coming off a 9-1 season and then and then three wins. Uh, they'll get a pretty stiff test uh, on Saturday at Thomas More.
0: So that's the Around the Nation podcast for week three of the 2013 Division Three football season. Thanks for joining us. And as we mentioned, all sorts of coverage of Division Three football throughout the week on D3Football.com.